The Craft Food Classroom is a comprehensive and in-depth five-part online, go-at-your-own-pace course that will provide everything needed to build a thriving food business. Each module includes a video, presentation, workbook, and quiz. This course teaches students exactly what they need to know to succeed in the craft food industry and avoid pitfalls and costly mistakes. Learn more at thecentral.kitchen/classroom and you can use podcast21 at checkout for 10% off anytime. Again, that code is podcast21 for 10% off. Welcome to the Physical Product Movement, a podcast by Fiddle. We share stories of the world's most ambitious and exciting physical product brands to help you capitalize on the monumental change in how, why, and where consumers buy. I'm your host, Ken Ojuka. Today, I have the chance to talk with Matt Feldman, founder and CEO of Moku Foods and a member of the Forbes 30 Under 30. Matt talks about how growing up in Hawaii gave him an appreciation and a love for the environment. And as a vegan, he decided to launch a company that could help reduce the negative environmental impact of the meat industry. He decided to make a plant-based jerky made from mushrooms. This is what became Moku Foods' first product. In the process of launching his CPG brand, Matt learned some important lessons that he shares with us. He talks about what it means to commercialize your product and why the product that you make in the kitchen is not the same product you can take to market. He talks about the value of seeking out strong operational partners to avoid many of the common pitfalls many fall into in the CPG space. And he also shares how he was able to cold outreach to an investor to get her interested in his product and ultimately invest and partner with him. Matt was a great guest, and we hope to have him back for round two in the near future. He was wide open about the lessons he learned on his journey that can help you get to success faster and avoid fewer mistakes. Enjoy. All right. Hey, Matt. How you doing? Thanks for jumping on. Doing great, Ken. Appreciate you having me on. I'm excited. Yeah. Hey, where am I finding you right now? I am in Venice Beach, California. Okay. And you're typically based in Hawaii. Is that right? Is that what I read? Yeah, that's right. During the pandemic, I had moved back to Hawaii to launch the business, which is where I'm from, and spent the last two years there and recently moved to Venice Beach. And I'll split time between Hawaii and, and California. But Venice is definitely closer to all the action where the natural food and plant-based food world is. So right. definitely appreciate being here, but also love being in Hawaii. I think everybody loves being in Hawaii. I went in high school. That was the last time I went. And I am ready to go back. So. <laughs> yeah. Got to make but, it happen. Uh, why don't we jump right into it? Typically, we like to start the podcast by talking about a quote that is impactful to you or meaningful to you in some way. Do you have one in mind? Yeah. One that I live by that I repeat to myself every day is everything is happening best case scenario. And this is kind of a, a mantra to myself. A, a friend of mine actually mentioned it to me a few years ago. And it's a reminder for me that no matter how much chaos there is, when things are feeling like they're going in a bad direction or going haywire. It's a great quote for me to remind myself that everything is happening the way it should be. And mm -hmm. even though if it feels like it's not, I don't know what the grand plan is at the end of the day. So I'm going to trust that everything is happening best case scenario. And it really helps me to 
peace with whatever happens because at the end of the day, we have so little control over a lot of external factors. It just makes me feel good and content with everything that I'm doing. I like it. I like it. Very cool. That's a very zen, peaceful way to start the conversation. I've been looking forward to talking to you. I've heard about your brand and uh, you were recommended from a friend of mine. And so I want to just hear the whole story, kind of how all this came about. So why don't we start, though, with talking a little bit about your background, where you're from, how you ended up in Hawaii, or if that's just where you're from, and, and then we can go from there. Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up on Oahu in Hawaii. Okay. And cool. I was always very passionate about the environment and sustainability. And from an early age, I knew that at some point, I wanted to start a business centered around sustainability somehow. But I didn't know how or what that would be. And fast forward, I went to college in New York. I played basketball. And then ended up moving to Silicon Valley to take a job in tech and worked in tech for five years on the business side. And it was good. I learned a lot, gained a a lot of skills, but I knew it wasn't my passion. And I was kind of just waiting for that idea to come that would get me really riled up and excited to quit everything and start a business. And during that time in 2018, I had gone vegan and I was looking for an alternative, like a savory meaty alternative. And I couldn't find any vegan jerkies that I liked. None that taste good. And the few that were out there were processed soy, which I'm intolerant to. So I started making mushroom jerky out of my house just for fun and Uh sampled it out to family and friends. And enough people liked it to where I was like, okay, I have the validation to really take this on. So while I was working full time, I basically did as much networking as possible to meet the right people to really just understand what I was getting myself into and learn the basics of the food industry since I had no background. And during that time, I had a meeting with the former or at the time, he was the current head of R&D at a company called Just. And they make a product called Just Egg and Just Mayo. It's a plant-based alternative to the real thing. And Uh I was asking him questions about taking my kitchen recipe to the next level with different R&D companies. And he was like, Hey man, I can, I'm about to leave the company. I'll just work with you. And this guy, his name is Thomas Bowman. He's a Michelin chef, food scientist, one of the top colonists, I would say, in the country. And I was, it was like timing was absolutely perfect. So Thomas and I worked together in 2019 to 2020 for about a year in the kitchen. And basically, what we were trying to do is dial in the texture to turn king oyster mushrooms into a jerky that tasted as close as possible to beef jerky or turkey jerky. And it's tough because mushrooms act in a very different way than beef. And to get that marinade to adhere properly and get that texture sound is very difficult. But we spent a ton of time working on it. And obviously, he's one of the top experts in the space. So it, it definitely paid off. And then in 2020, during the pandemic, we worked on commercializing the product in order to scale it. And in early 2021, we launched fully direct to consumer. And we've been growing ever since. Our first three flavors were original, sweet and spicy, and Hawaiian teriyaki. And we're about to launch three new flavors in the next few months. So a lot of things happening here throughout the team, getting into retail this year. But I'll stop there in case you have any other specific questions. I've got lots of questions. That's pretty awesome. And and congratulations on all the success. Thank you Um, so much. Yeah, I read that you were on the Forbes 30 under 30. Is that right? Yeah, I got that in 2021 soon after launch. Yeah. So I guess before I launch into my questions, why don't we start there? What's the significance of that for those who don't know what that means and what that process is like? Why don't you tell us just a little bit about that experience? Yeah, sure. So for those that aren't familiar with it, Forbes chooses 30 people in each sector 
and food and beverage is one of those categories. And they choose 30 people that demonstrate, it could be a number of different things, but quote unquote success within their vertical. It could be restaurants, it could be chefs, it could be entrepreneurs. And I was fortunate enough to be chosen as one of those 30 for 2021. And the way it happened for me is probably different from most people that have won it because I think what most people do is apply and get as many significant like people to kind of validate them. Uh-huh. And for me, I actually heard the head of food and beverage at Forbes on a podcast and I reached out cold to her. This was about six months or eight months before they chose the winners. And I was like, hey, this is what I'm building. I worked with a Michelin chef to turn king oyster mushrooms into a delicious jerky. And after like, I had to guess her email because she didn't respond to my LinkedIn messages. And finally, guessed the right email at Forbes. And she finally got back to me and she's like, wow, I love mushrooms. I would love to try it. So sent her some samples. We got on a call. We went, chatted back and forth and stayed in touch as I grew the business and finally got the product to the 10 judges for Forbes. And then two months later, <laughs> I, I woke up and had no idea it was going to happen. But <laughs> That's cool. It was one of those very fortunate events and super grateful for it. I would say like, the one thing is, I would say just more respect from people. Yeah, yeah. Easier to reach out to people. I would say having that on my LinkedIn. But other yeah. than that, it's nothing more than a, an accolade. Yeah. Do you think it impacted the business? Like it drove traffic to your product or anything like that? Is that being mentioned? I would say like it, more on LinkedIn connections with people in some of the press articles, they mentioned it. So only good things. I don't know how much like revenue it drove to the business, but I would say like when people mention me in, in press, like they'll mention that and it only helps. Okay, cool. So let's just rewind just for a second. So you mentioned that you decided to go go vegan. Was there any real motivation behind that? People don't just, I guess, decide to go vegan. Usually there's something behind it. So I had watched a, a documentary on Netflix called Cowspiracy. And it was about the environmental impacts of the beef industry or the meat industry in general and factory Mm -hmm. farming. Mm -hmm. And that was the biggest thing for me at first because I've always been very into the environment and how we can sustain our planet. And especially growing up in Hawaii with limited natural resources, we had to be even extra conscious about our decisions and how we contributed to the island on an individual level. And that documentary just blew me away and how unsustainable the beef industry and the factory farming was. So after that, I was like, okay, let me try going vegan for two weeks and see how I feel. Mm-hmm. And that two-week test for me, and to preface, like everyone's body is different. This doesn't work for everyone. And I think people shouldn't just go straight into it. They should do small tests to see how their body reacts. But for me, after those two weeks, and you know, I had planned out my meals. I had planned out where I was going to eat. I didn't go into it blind. But For me, it changed everything. I felt mentally much more clear. Physically, I was great. You know, I had to eat a little more and plan out my meals a little more, but I felt great. It's not like I was losing weight, which I was afraid of. Mm -hmm. And spiritually, I was just much more connected. And that was like what probably pushed me to go vegan full time after that, because I just felt a connection to nature and just through meditation and things like that, which I wasn't able to receive before going vegan. So I definitely attribute it to that. And then from there, I just went full on. I started a vegan meetup in San Francisco, which grew to like 70 people. And I was the face of it. So I had to be very strict. And from there, it just became a lifestyle. It wasn't even a choice after that. The ethical part also made sense. And the health part also made sense. So I just kind of ran with it and it worked for me. You can just show up to the meetup with a burger or something? No, the point of it was actually for education. So people that weren't really sure or wanted to try it or 
had reservations about going vegan, we wanted them to come. It wasn't just like a meetup. So you mentioned that you're an athlete. Uh, you played in college. Is that right? You played basketball? Yeah, that's right. And so were you like playing sports at the time? Were you being pretty physically active and did going vegan affect that in any way? Yeah. So when I was in college, I was not vegan. I, I did primarily eat plant-based, but I would eat some seafood and very rarely eat red meat, but I did eat chicken. Yeah. So it definitely would have been tougher to be vegan in college just from like the options in college. But no, I was not vegan back then. Yeah, this isn't a vegan podcast, but you can obviously tell I'm very interested. I'm one of these guys too, where I do the two week thing like, hey, let me just give it a shot for two weeks, see how I feel. And so I've actually been eyeing, trying vegan for a little bit and seeing what happens. I think that's the best way to do anything is to give yourself a time limit test. And then that way you can go all in and then assess whether it's the right decision and make any tweaks after that. Yeah, so let's fast forward to your product. So why mushrooms? When I was thinking about what ingredient to use as an alternative to meat, I wanted something that was very meaty, so had a meaty texture. I obviously wanted something that was clean and healthy. I didn't want to compromise on the ingredient label like some of these bigger meat alternative companies are doing. And I wanted something that was very sustainable. And mushrooms, at the time I was learning more and more about mushrooms, I feel like they were popping up everywhere I went. And I was like, there's got to be a way to turn mushrooms into jerky. And I played around with portobellos, but it wasn't until I started working with Thomas until we really started getting serious with the king oyster mushrooms. And these are the huge mushrooms. If you yeah. Google. They have, I think, the meatiest texture out of all of them. And so that was what we went with. Yeah. And so describe playing around. What were you doing to, were you actually thinking of it as a jerky and you were trying to just kind of reproduce that in your house or in your own kitchen? What did that process look like? Yeah. So Thomas and I were first trying to figure out which mushroom to use. And after we figured out we wanted king oyster mushrooms, then we were trying to figure out, okay, do we grind it all up and then marinate it together and and then extrude it into a jerky strip? Or do Mm -hmm. we slice the whole mushroom and marinate pieces of it. And what we found was that if you grind it all up, it loses that quote unquote muscle or fibrous texture that mushrooms still have. So we decided to keep it like sliced. And then we were trying to figure out like the form and the shape. And at first we had literally like bacon strips and the product was much more like bacon than jerky. Uh uh And people loved it. Yeah, which isn't a bad thing. It doesn't sound too bad. Yeah, but it was a shelf stable product. It was originally called plant mushroom bacon jerky. But when we got feedback on the label was like, we're changing too many things from the norm. Like no one knows what bacon jerky is, let alone it's already a mushroom product. So let's keep it simple. Let's keep it as close to jerky as possible, but using mushrooms. So we changed the way we sliced the mushrooms so that they're in jerky-like pieces and then ended up launching with that. Okay, got it. So you mentioned the process of commercializing the product, right? So I imagine you had your first initial batches and getting some good feedback from customers or just friends, people that you had trying it out. What does the process of commercializing the product mean? And what did you guys do? Yeah, this was probably the biggest wake up call for me, which I did not expect or really understand at the time. But ideating and developing a product in the kitchen is night and day from commercializing it, and how that product will turn out and what's needed. So Mm -hmm. when Thomas and I first developed the first rendition of our product, we thought it would be able to scale in a beef jerky co-manufacturer. But what we quickly realized is one, most of the beef jerky manufacturers did not want to work with the plant-based product, which is understandable because they're under USDA guidelines and they can't cross-contaminate meat and plant-based. So they didn't want to deal with it. So it took us a long time to find the right fit. But once we found the right fit, we realized that our process is very, very different from beef jerky. There's a couple more steps 
and a much shorter dehydration time. But we had to build out our own line at the manufacturer we're at because we used completely different machinery and a different process. And we had to be away from where the meat was being processed. So that whole step was very long. It took us three different manufacturers until we found the right one. We had to buy all of our own equipment to use there. And this, the product itself was different because when you're making it out of a kitchen compared to making 100,000 units, it's just going to be a very different process. So mm -hmm. that took even more expertise that I had to bring on. And to me, looking back, it's definitely the hardest part, I think, of starting a food and beverage business is commercializing it because what you make on the benchtop might not even be possible at scale. And this is a completely different process. So any young entrepreneurs out there, make sure you are aware of the commercialization and are ahead of it and make sure you have what you need to commercialize a product before developing it. Could you uh, maybe go a little bit more into that? Do you have maybe one thing that you had to change in the product that was maybe a little bit unexpected or in the process that was different from when you were doing it in, in the kitchen to when you were trying to commercialize it? Yeah, it's more just we thought ours would be able to go right onto the line of a beef jerky manufacturer and use the same steps. But we quickly learned that like the process to make ours is so different. So the hard part was having to buy machinery and have our own line and do a completely different operation than what they were already doing. Okay. Uh -huh. But my piece of advice would be develop your product for scale instead of developing the product and then transitioning to scale. If you develop it first outright for scale, knowing what machinery and equipment you'll need, then you won't have to worry about that next step. Okay, got it. And then you mentioned developing your own line within a manufacturer. So how did you develop that relationship with the manufacturer where they would let you come in and, and actually do that? Or did you know these guys? How did that develop? Yeah, it was a longstanding relationship. So we got to know them. We sold them on our vision and how the market is moving to plant-based meat alternatives. And they didn't know both parties didn't know what we would exactly need. So when we started running tests there, we added one piece of equipment in and they're like, hey guys, this is not scalable. It's not automated enough. Like you guys are going to need to bring this piece of equipment in. And then after going back and forth, we ended up and doing a bunch of tests. We ended up bringing three or four different pieces of machinery in and we still use some of their machinery, but it's basically our own separate. Real quick before this episode starts, I want to ask you, are you still using spreadsheets to manage your inventory, suppliers, co-packers, and production? Unless you're a wizard with sales and formulas, you can only grow so much with spreadsheets. When you're selling on your website, in retail stores, in online marketplaces, and more, it gets hard to track your inventory levels. Stockouts become a regular occurrence and fulfilling orders keep you awake at night. Use Fiddle instead. Our software is built to help CPG businesses like yours scale more easily with constant insight into your inventory and production at all levels. Go to fiddle.io to learn more and schedule a personalized demo. ...line at the manufacturing facility. Yeah, that makes sense. And the whole manufacturing process, obviously you described it as you had to go through three different manufacturers and set all this up. But this is a place where a lot of entrepreneurs get stuck and really, really have a hard time. You pick the wrong manufacturer and you can just end up with just a, a less than ideal product and couldn't really hurt your business. Uh, do you have any tips for, obviously you went through a couple of manufacturers, like what should you look for in a good manufacturer? Yeah, a lot of tips on what not to do. <laughs> I would say at first, have good lawyers to do the contract, which I sort of shortcut it in the beginning and, and it ended up being like a semi-disaster for the first mm -hmm. manufacturer. Mm -hmm. And really just having someone that is experienced, whether it's a friend or someone you contract out or a team member, 
someone on the ops side that has worked in food commercialization to come and tour the facility, meet with the team, because it's really easy for them to sniff out BS. Whereas for me, like we got caught in a situation where we were getting fooled into that us, me thinking that we could work there. But in reality, they just wanted to suck us in and, and suck as much money out of us as possible. Hmm. And that was the first relationship, which didn't go well at all. But I tried to do it all myself and I didn't have the expertise and didn't know what to look for. So I would say that was just like one red flag that any young entrepreneur should look at. They might not have the resources to hire someone on the operation side, but at least bring in someone, pay them hourly to come with you to visit the facility and ask the questions because it would save you a lot of money in the future. Are there uh, any questions that you should be asking? Touring the exact facility in which they were going to make the product. Like they were just telling us they have the area and the facility. And when it came down to it, they really didn't. And then being very tight on the trial agreements and the actual co-man agreements and having good lawyers put that together because we kind of shortcutted that and ended up having to spend way too much time and money fixing it. Yeah, yeah, sounds good. And any other tips, maybe on the product side, like what questions you should ask specific to your product? How do you find out if a manufacturer is not just BSing you? So I like the tip of showing up, walking the floor, actually uh, touring the facility. I think that will tell you a lot. That'll tell you a lot. And I think really getting to know them, spending time with them in person, going out to lunch with them, going for a walk with them, whoever's running the facility. Because at the end of the day, you have to trust your instinct on if like you think the partnership will be good. And if the person running it is legit and genuine, I didn't take enough time to do that for the first one. I was just like, we needed a place to make the product. I was desperate. And so I kind of pushed and moved too early on it. But spending time with the person because it's like a marriage, like you're going to be making your product there. And it's the most important parts of your business because if the product isn't turning out good, then you can't sell it. So just putting the extra time into making sure that whoever's running the, the facility is legit, I think is worth your while. But another like general tip is for me, this is a general statement, but at least for me, I would never start a business on my own again. It was just way too difficult in many ways. And I'm happy to jump into the reasons why. I think definitely we should. And I've had the same experience. And in my current business, I actually had to recruit a co-founder. And I had sort of my criteria that I was looking for. And that being said, I think partners are like this manufacturer. It's actually not too different. You've got to find somebody that you can trust, that you feel like can do the job. And there's a lot that goes into that. But yeah, I want to hear your motivation for saying that. Why you wouldn't start another business by yourself again. Yeah. So I did try to find a co-founder early on, but I just didn't find anyone that was a good alignment or the right fit. Mm -hmm. So I ended up just doing it myself. And I eventually brought on a minority business partner more on the financing side. But in terms of the day-to-day co-founding or co-founder job, I I never found someone. And it was fine. I I got to where we're at now and we're Mm -hmm. growing and I was able to retain more equity. But I would say the reasons why I would never do that again is one, speed to market. Me having to do everything myself was just not efficient from a time standpoint. And I'm not an expert in everything. And me being able to... If I brought someone on that was very sound in operations and finance, we could have got the product to market and made a lot less mistakes than me trying to do it myself. So that's one, just from a time component. Two, I think capital. One, like funding the business. I put the first 100K in, which was a lot of money for me. And splitting it would have been more easier on my bank account. And also when raising capital, I, I do believe that VCs and angel investors prefer to see multiple founders around the table because it's just more diversified and more people putting in that extra work for the company. So if I was an investor, I would want to see it. And then 
Another component is like when things are going bad, like stomaching it and having everything fall on your, your shoulders is really difficult from a mental health point of view because no one can really relate to exactly what you're going through. And being able to share the losses and the wins with someone else would have just made my life a lot easier and probably helped my mental health. But I do believe, like I said earlier, that everything is happening best case scenario. So I am fortunate that I went through the struggles and the lessons because it's made me stronger. But part of it is learning what not to do in the future. And for me personally, I would no doubt bring at least one or two people on, even if it will reduce my equity. I think it's always worth it. Yep. Well said. And I agree. The the point about nobody really understanding, like really relating. And I think lots of people, well-intentioned people in your life try to, but unless you're in the business every day and you live, you sleep this, you just bleed the business, basically, you don't really get it. A very lonely place. Exactly. And you don't want to be explaining to people like friends and family, anyone that asks when things are going really bad, you don't want to be mentioning that, but everyone will always ask how the business is doing. So you just have to keep a level headed answer. Yeah. And that's actually, that's something that I've learned since being an entrepreneur is when I ask another entrepreneur how things are going, I really try to look at like, okay, are they just telling me the the answer they think I want to hear? Because as an entrepreneur, you're expected to be crushing it all the time and everything's up and to the right and there are no problems. When in reality, all you're dealing with every day, all day is problems. Yeah, you know? exactly. And very hairy problems that you probably haven't dealt with before. So you're learning on the job and trying to figure things out. And it, it can be very, very stressful. 100%. I think that's a huge misconception of like founders and what people think founders are doing. But like, you wouldn't need to be so involved in the business if you were just handling all the good things. It, it really is majority of putting out fires and handling the big issues and being creative to figure out how to solve those issues. That's really what entrepreneurship is about. And then every so often, you'll hit a huge break. You'll get into an account. You'll have a celebrity post your product and get a bunch of sales from it. But most of the time is dealing with a lot of bullshit and a lot of big issues that you're in the seat to solve. And that's right. why entrepreneurs are get a lot of accolades because like they really are in the arena figuring it out. It's not easy. And there's no script for how to figure it out. You're figuring it out on the go. And another misconception is like, oh, if you surround yourself with amazing people that are experienced, like you can get all the, the answers. But it's really not true because so many of these things you're figuring out are they're just like in real time and there's no precedent for what the right answer might be. You really have to just give it your best judgment and take in others' recommendations or insight and tips. But like every situation is different and you a lot of the times have to just make the call based on your own gut. And that's such a good point. One of the frustrating things that I had to learn the hard way was a lot of people will have their entrepreneurs, they'll have tips on marketing, for instance, how they were able to market their product. And you have to realize eventually that you have to take it through the lens of the time period, when and what product and which market. There's a lot that goes into why you can't just rinse and repeat the exact same thing they did. Absolutely. Right? 100%. Um, you can waste so much time just trying to make something work that just won't work for your business. And what worked a year ago, most of the time doesn't work today. Right. And you have uh, early on, like there were a lot of entrepreneurs that created and then sold their business in the early 2010s. But like, it's a completely different world now. So a lot of that insight isn't even relatable now. And usually when something really works, everyone catches on to it and then it doesn't work a year later. Right. A lot of these brands that scaled on Facebook three years ago, they wouldn't have been able to do that now. And new brands can't follow that precedent. So you really are figuring things out in real time. And that's a lot of the fun of it too. 
Yeah. And every day is different. No two days are exactly the same because of it. So that's why I love entrepreneurship as well. One other point on that too, is just that, that a lot of times when people are giving you like advice, I'll just take marketing advice because that's what you hear a lot of is a lot of times it's like it worked and then it doesn't work anymore. And if it was still working, they would just be using it to build their own business. It's almost like you have to take everything that you're told with a grain of salt. But at the same time, some things do work. And so it's not like you can discount everything. There are some patterns, there are some principles of business and how to make this work, but you can't just expect, okay, here's the blueprint that this other business used. Let me just follow the same blueprint for my business. Would you agree with that? A hundred percent. And the word that you'll hear the most as an entrepreneur, once you start working with marketing people is testing because you have to test, test, test. And that's the whole reason if something worked, everyone would be doing it. But in reality, you just don't know. So you just have to continue testing iteration after iteration. And then when you see significant results from one variable, then you double down on it. And sometimes that process is long because you have to conduct many tests and you don't want to be testing too many variables at the same time. And it costs money. Like you're, the, yeah. the variables that are losing out, you're burning money for, but you, you have to do it. If you take a guess, then you really won't know if you're doing it the right way or not. Well, let's actually switch to that. The distribution, marketing, sales part of your business. So it sounds like you, and was it Tom? Is that his name? Yeah, yeah. Thomas Bowman was the chef, uh, R&D okay. columnist uh-huh. that I worked with. But our agreement was that he would only work with me for the year before he started his own business. Okay, And he's off and running with his. So I got a year with him and it was fortunately enough time. But after that, I launched the business myself. I ended up partnering with a woman named Melissa Facina on the VP, VC and ops side. Uh-huh. So she's like a minority co-founder or business partner. And then from there, I brought on two marketing folks and I outsourced an operations team, which is essentially like the co-founding team. So that's what we have now. And we're all remote across the country. So what did you guys do to start getting the word out and to get your product into stores and direct to consumer? Just tell me about the strategy. We launched on Shopify and fully direct to consumer. So we didn't have any retail presence. So a couple, I would say a month before, I myself and our marketing folks, we got as many folks we knew prepped and got samples to them. And for the week of launch, we had, I think, over 100 people announce it on Instagram, post about it. And then we reached out to as many micro-influencers and anyone that reached out about the product, we just give them free product to post. But that was a year ago. Times have changed. Instagram is very, very different now. It's becoming obsolete, in my opinion, and things are moving Mm -hmm. to TikTok. So you have to be very adaptive. And we barely do any Instagram influencer marketing now. It's basically all TikTok creators. So did they convince you to to get on TikTok and start dancing and showing off the product? Or what's your involvement with that? Yeah, we have a full-time TikTok person. She's a social media manager, but she initially came on as our TikTok creator. And so she's posting multiple videos a day. It's a very terms of revenue, but we're very bought into TikTok being like the future. And investing in it now, I think we'll pay dividends a year or two years from now. So we've been building our presence there. I'll jump on from time to time, but Typically, like, I'm not that great in front of the camera, so I just leave it to her. <laughs> but we do have founder origin videos that we'll start putting on YouTube and TikTok and Instagram and the website and emails. So I definitely am involved in some of the content creation. And we do try to make it... We want to make it transparent and show the good and the bad. And that's part of a new series we're going to do on YouTube and TikTok of just showing what goes on under the hood of launching or running a CPG business. So there's clips of me talking to buyers on Zoom and setting up for... We had an Oscars event that we were dishing product out. Just like behind the scenes of what really goes on. We want to make it fun and insightful for people watching. Yeah. Yeah. What about a wholesale strategy? 
Yeah. So we just started that earlier this year. It's a long process, but we work with a, a consultancy on getting into different retailers. So like Mother's Market will be our first retailer. And then we're just talking to Sprouts and Whole Foods and all of those. And the review cycles happen in different parts of the year. So it's a very steady and slow game. But you have to stay top of mind and make sure your timing is right and your thing on top of it. But slowly, we'll start getting into more retailers. And we're just getting onboarded with distribution now. Awesome. And of course, it's a unique product. I'm looking forward to trying it myself. I think we set up a promo code for anybody listening that, that actually wants to try it. So you'd agreed generously to offer 20% off for everybody listening to this podcast and just put in the code PPM20, PPM Physical Product Movement 20. So PPM20 to get the 20% off. Any tips for which flavors to try for first-time people? I would go with the variety pack. We'll soon be offering the variety three-pack on our site by the time this comes out. So Mm -hmm. try them all. Teriyaki and sweet and spicy are probably the, the two favorites. Sweet and spicy is my favorite. I didn't talk too much about the product, but we have a two ounce bag of mushroom jerky. And most of our customers actually eat meat over half of them. So it's not just a, a snack for vegans. It's really something that anyone can enjoy. And, and people usually eat it in between meals or during as like a midday snack because it's healthy. It's savory. A lot of people are sick of eating popcorn or chips or nuts as a savory snack. And this is something that's nutrient dense. There's no compromises. You won't feel guilty about eating. And there's nine grams of fiber per bag and six grams of protein. So it really is that perfect midday snack to keep you full and satisfied in between meals. But yeah, yeah try them cool. all. And we love to hear what people think. And I'm also happy to help anyone that's listening if they want tips on starting their own business or just wants to pick my brain and love meeting new people and, and helping people through entrepreneurship because I received a lot of help when I started. Yeah, very cool. So what's coming up for the, the rest of the year? What are you excited about for the remainder of 2022? We have three new flavors coming out. Maui onion, Korean barbecue, and lemon pepper. Those Mm. will launch in July. And we're having a lot of exciting conversations with retailers. A lot of online marketplaces are going to start carrying our product. And another exciting thing is we're working on a new product, which is another meat alternative snack, which is going to launch hopefully by the end of the year. But I think that one is going to really excite people. It will be the first product to market that's plant-based in this form. So we're hard at work working with another R&D team on that. So a lot of exciting things in the queue. And yeah, just excited for the future and just tackling it one day at a time. Very cool. Well, let's wrap up with the quick fire round. I've just got four quick questions for you. What's one tool or resource that you feel has helped you the most in your current position? LinkedIn. In the beginning, I reached out to so many founders on LinkedIn, asked for 10 minutes of their time to pick their brain over coffee or, or Zoom. And it worked out incredibly. And I was able to to meet so many different people and learn so much in a pretty short amount of time. What's one book that you could recommend to the audience? I love Joe Dispenza's books. I think You Are Superhuman. I might be butchering the name, but that one is just about how changing your mindset to better yourself and better your future. But all of Joe Dispenza's books, I highly recommend. And what's one piece of advice that you give to your 21-year-old self? Try new things and not worry about them working out or not. And more just setting a certain amount of time to try something new. and seeing what happens and not caring about whether it works out or not, I would say. Because I feel like that your 20s are for experiments. Cool. Who is one person in your field of work, maybe another entrepreneur or another brand that you kind of look up to? Who's somebody that you'd love to take to lunch? So my favorite entrepreneur in the space happens to be a good friend of mine. His name is Salim Najjar. He's like a sparkling tea beverage. And I look up to him so much. I think he's one of the best founders and CEOs I've met. He's also one of the best humans I've met. He's incredible at 
health hacking. I just learned so much from him on so many different levels. So it's a good reminder. I, I should take him out to lunch soon. So I'd say him. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. All right, man. Matt, you've been a great guest and uh, I appreciate you taking the time and being so open and willing to hear from people and connect with people. If somebody did want to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. My name is Matt Feldman. I'm on Instagram, Matt underscore Kainoa, which is my middle name. Feel free to reach out on any of the channels and follow Moku Foods on Instagram and TikTok. Awesome. Mostly TikTok though, because Instagram is is fading away, right? More entertaining for (laughs) sure. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I appreciate it. And congrats on all the success and accolades. We're definitely watching your product and I look forward to trying it. Yeah. Thank you so much, Ken. I appreciate you having me on, man. That was fun. Okay. Take care, man. Take care. The Physical Product Movement Podcast is brought to you by Fiddle. To find out more about Fiddle and how our industry-leading inventory ops platform is giving modern brands and manufacturers full visibility into their inventory and operations, visit fiddle.io. And then make sure to search for Physical Product Movement in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Fiddle, thanks for listening. Hey everyone, my name is Taylor Howe and I'm the marketing manager here at Fiddle. I want to jump on real quick to tell you about an incredible free resource that we put together for CPG brands. It's called Fiddle Connect. It's a curated database of over 3,000 co-packers and suppliers. You'll get websites, phone numbers, locations, categories, and more, all in one place. It's a must-have for any CPG brand, especially in the food, beverage, or nutraceutical space. And again, it's 100% free. To get immediate access, just go to fiddle.io forward slash connect. We are constantly updating the database, and we promise you're going to love it. It'll save you time and headaches by helping you get to suppliers and co-packers faster than ever. So again, just go to fiddle.io forward slash connect to get free access today.